Hello from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast, a podcast that connects college and university students with AEI scholars to discuss pressing issues facing our country and world. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I'm thrilled to bring you this conversation between AEI's President Robert Doerr and Executive Council student Nick Tolbert. Before I turn it over to Nick, I want to let you know that AEI's Executive Council program gives students the opportunity to engage with AEI scholars through conversations like this one and to lift up the quality of public policy dialogue on campuses throughout the country. If you want to get involved, learn more, and join us in this effort, check out the link in the show notes and be sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating to help others find the podcast. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Nick Talbert. I'm a junior at the University of Alabama studying political science and philosophy. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Robert Doerr, who is the president of the American Enterprise Institute. Since becoming president of AEI in 2019, he has recruited dozens of leading scholars and fellows across multiple issue areas and launched a new research division focused on social, cultural, and constitutional studies. Mr. Doerr joined AEI in 2014 to lead the Institute's Poverty Studies Program after serving in leadership positions in the Social Services Program of New York State and New York City, and he studied history at Princeton. Robert, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's good to be on a podcast with a student at the University of Alabama. Absolutely. We're getting everywhere. So to start with just a little bit of background, your father, John Doerr, was an instrumental in the civil rights movement through his work as the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights in the Department of Justice in the early 60s. What are some lessons you learned from your father growing up that have stuck with you throughout your career? Well, so dad's career at the Justice Department was kind of interesting. He he came there as a sort of mid-career lawyer. He was 40 years old. He moved from northwest Wisconsin to work at the very end of the Eisenhower administration in 1960, and he joined the Civil Rights Division. And then he immediately went south because he was a trial lawyer, and he was comfortable in and around courthouses, gathering evidence, putting together cases. And he worked on voting rights cases. And then when President Kennedy was elected, uh, even though he was a Republican, they decided to keep him because they liked him. And then he really just devoted himself to the, 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 the trade, the practice of law in, in voting and other civil rights matters all across the South. And he was good at it. He, he won hard cases in difficult courtrooms and made a contribution to really significant what we sometimes call now the revolution by law that was the civil rights movement, where a lot of really important changes took place in a largely peaceful way and largely through efforts in the courts and in the, and in the Congress. And um, I think the lesson that we learned from his experience, or I learned, was to, to work hard, to devote yourself to a challenge that seems hard, but, it, but if you overcome it, it will be good for your country. Dad was a patriot. He loved America. And he believed in America, and so he believed that the challenges of the civil rights movement in the 1950s, 1960s, which some people thought were insurmountable, it couldn't be solved, would be on. He didn't believe that. He thought this is something that we can take on and lead our country forward in a positive way. The other thing is, he very much, you know, we had a book event yesterday with John Avlin, who's written a book about uh, President Lincoln's attitude toward Reconstruction, and Dad's attitude very much was including for places like the University of Alabama, University of Mississippi, where he was, was that there were a lot of good people all across the South who wanted to make this change too. And if his 
position as a representative of the federal government came across as being very sort of top-down and superior and uh, we know best and, and you don't know what you're doing. And uh, it was not going to work. That He had to make it come across as a way to help them embrace the changes that were needed in the South and make them their own. And, you know, in one of his famous cases, in a, it was, a, it was a, a murder case in Neshoba County, Mississippi, he said to the jury, this is a Mississippi, this is a Mississippi courtroom, this is a Mississippi jury, this is a Mississippi judge, and you're going to decide this. It's an all-white Mississippi jury. And they decided correctly, and he had faith that they would. And many of us today in Alabama and the University of Alabama know and admire John Dornan's work. So to move on a little bit towards your career, as a conservative who's almost worked solely within welfare, it's not very common. What drew you to studying and working in welfare, and how do you think being a conservative in the field has affected your career? Well, as we mentioned in your first question concerning my dad, he had worked in civil rights, and that had been, I think, led to a, little, a lot of positive change, and including at the University of Alabama, which is very clear there. If you go there today, it's clear. Um, but poverty and uh, struggling families and, and crime in, in urban areas is a different problem. And so when I was coming up, rather than say, well, I'll recreate or I'll follow dad's strict footsteps and go into the law, where I didn't really think the real challenge was anymore, I wanted to work in economic policy and in social services policy because those challenges for Americans who were struggling to me seemed more important or education policy. Uh, public schools in the country seemed in desperate need of help. And I wasn't sure that a civil rights lawyer was really what they needed. What they needed was better schools and in welfare policy. I didn't think it was more benefits or more transfer payments. I think they needed jobs and they needed a, an emphasis on personal responsibility and and family and two parents. And so basically it was what I sometimes say to young people like yourself is as you look forward to your future, if you're interested in public policy, think about it and and say to yourself, well, where's the biggest problem in America that I think? Some people have different problems that they care about. What's the one that I care most about that fits my character, my interests, and go try to fix it. And that's what I did. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and the 70s and 80s were not a great time for the city of New York and not a great time for poor people in the city of New York. And I thought the policies that were being perpetuated there, mostly from the left, were harmful, not helpful. And um, so I just put myself to the task of getting opportunities to work in that field. Thankfully, I got to work for Governor Pataki and then I got to work for Mike Bloomberg. And I was a conservative in social services. And that, you're right, is a little bit odd. It's not actually that odd. There are a lot of people in faith-based institutions and organizations, a lot of people here at AI who are conservatives who work on this. Um, it's a little odd in New York City. Um, but if, if, you're, if, you, if you've got a, a friendly demeanor, if you're open and honest and, and authentic with people, um, I found that people accept you, you know, that not everybody, especially in the business. And so, for instance, you know, I ran an agency in New York City for Mike Bloomberg, got 14,000 employees, probably they, you know, overwhelmingly minority, overwhelmingly union members, overwhelmingly Democrats. But they, we worked really well together because they all believed, because they all were workers. They all believed that people uh, who were struggling needed employment more than they needed, you know, cash benefits. And they could accept that. That was a fundamental value that they held in the way they lived. So I actually found it not to be so hard. If you're just honest and straightforward, 
um, and direct and open, people accept you. When looking at your bookshelf, I think two things are immediately clear. One, you yourself love reading, but two, more specifically, you love reading biographies. I've heard you talk about this a little bit before, but can you touch on why you think reading is so important and specifically why biographies? Well, for someone who's interested in public policy and in changing America going forward, the idea that you wouldn't really know how previous Americans facing challenges just as difficult as ours today, probably more difficult, uh, how they tackled them, the discipline they used, the characteristics that they used, the strategies they used. It seems to me it just would be a mistake. It's the most, the most helpful thing that I learned in my schooling and in my reading uh, for the job I currently have and the job I had when I worked for the governor and the mayor were the things I learned from history, from examples of other men and women facing tough challenges and, and trying to organize people or move people in a direction that would be good for the country. And so I found it just really, just really good practical advice. We had a book event here at AEI yesterday with John Avalon, who's written a book about Abraham Lincoln's theory of the peace after the conclusion of the Civil War. And he said, and, and it's apparent, that the way in which he was trying to accomplish those ends, both the war and the peace after the war, if he had lived, he would have had a greater impact on that, um, are just very informative for challenges we face today. So, so for instance, John stressed that President Lincoln insisted on um, complete surrender and then a very benevolent and, and positive uh, reconciliation. But there had to be surrender. There had to be a recommitment to the federal authority by the people in the South. But once they'd done that, they would be fully accepted into the union, into the country and the life of, of society. And that kind of forgiveness, that even after a really horrible carnage, um, it is, is a good way to complete a war and, and, or complete a challenge or a divide. I sometimes, he didn't make this point, but I wanted to make it at the book event, was applying it to now. We have real divisions in American politics right now, especially among the, the right of center world. And, you know, what we are aiming for, what we need is to get, to turn the page on the past and move forward but be willing to bring back together people we've been fighting with because we're not going to be able to take on the real challenges, whether they're in the world or in the country against people who do have a fundamental difference with us on the role of government or the role of business or enterprise. Um, we're not going to be able to take them on uh, if we're not united ourselves. And we're not going to get united ourselves unless we're willing to reconcile with them and forgive past differences and move forward. And so, um, the benefit of reading biographies and reading histories is to learn lessons from them that allow you to figure out how to solve problems that are in front of you. Um, and this book by John Avalon about the, the President Lincoln is good. Uh, um, you know, Matt Continetti's got a great book on the history of the right. That's got a lot of stories about how people resolve differences. So there's, you know, I just, I strongly recommend to all students the, the, the habit of reading good histories and good biographies about great leaders because if you want to be a great leader, it's helpful to know how great leaders handle tough problems. Are there any books that you would recommend as essential readings for the average American, specifically maybe one or two biographies they think maybe every American should have on their bookshelf? Well, I that's a tough one because there are so many. I mean, there are just so many great books, and I hesitate to, to name just one. 
I, I want to throw in a, a, because you're from Alabama and you're from the South and, and, uh, I just love it. And it's not a biography, but it, it, it is a story of a man. It's a novel and, and it's called all the King's men by Robert Penn Warren. I think that's one of the great sort of stories of American politics, uh, ever written. And he's caught by a beautiful writer and it's also a great story. So I, I do, I, you know, and I like to also, while I have all this public policy stuff I do, I'm a great fan of American literature and American fiction. And All the King's Men is, a, is if you haven't read All the King's Men, then, then I don't, you know, then, then, then maybe come back next time, you know. I would agree. I read it years ago. It's fantastic. <laughs> okay, good. So in recent months, we've seen many pieces of legislation proposed by Republicans which focus on reforming certain aspects of federal welfare most notably Senator Mitt Romney's Family Security Act 2.0, which he spoke about during a July 28th AEI event. Can you speak on some of the recent legislation, what you like about it, and what you'd like to see changed? Well, there's two things going on in this discussion, and, and both of them I don't like. So uh, uh, the first is the sort of Republican um, social conservatives or Republicans who want to show that they care about struggling people or Republicans who want to just get a piece of legislation passed with their name on it, or I'm not sure what's motivating them. But what they really want to do is return, um, is provide greater economic support to um, working two-parent families um, who are working really hard but are still struggling and, and, and not really getting ahead. They're not making more than $100,000 or $120,000. And in America, that can be... You can feel like you, you can't afford a house. You can't afford to pay your kids college education. And that's prob probably true. It's very hard. And there's a strong desire to help that sort of middle, lower middle class families. And I sort of agree with that. But that's basically a tax cut. And so they're, they're dressing it up as a child tax uh, a credit. And, and, but it's basically returning federal dollars to those families reducing their federal tax burden to either zero or, or, or actually resulting in a, a refund um, to make it easier to raise a family in America and work in, in a job that doesn't pay more than $150,000. So I, that's, that's okay. I mean, I, don't, I, I like that idea, um, I, but that's a tax cut. And that's part of what Mitt Romney and Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley and those guys want to do. And then the other thing that they that the Democrats want to do is they want to return to the pre-welfare reform days where we write checks and federal government checks from the IRS or whoever. There's still checks to people who don't work at all and are often single parent families. And they they are getting support in a variety of ways, but they're not getting a direct check from the federal government every month. And these people, I think, are really taking us backwards to a sort of cash entitlement pre-welfare reform period where we just sent checks to people regardless of what they did. And what's happening is, is the funny thing in American politics is in order to get one in a bipartisan way, you have to do both. And, um, and I think that's just, that's a mistake. I, 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 while I'm all for additional tax relief for working middle-class families, um, if we can afford it, um, uh, and, But that's one thing, and we should call it that, and we should do that if that's what we want to do. Um, but I'm not for creating a new entitlement program to every household that has children 
that leads to us sending checks to households where there's no worker, no earnings, no, uh, if they've got significant problems, no effort to address those underlying issues because if you're getting money from Washington, maybe it makes you less likely to seek help from your church or your social services agency because, you know, sometimes struggling is what makes you have to go and see somebody and get some help. So there's this, again, strange dynamic where because of the divide in the Congress, and if you want to get one, you got to get both because you got to get support from both parties. And so in my opinion, um, that's going to lead to bad policy because I'm not, I'm not so sure we can afford this new middle-class tax cut. And I'm not so sure, um, I'm positive, in fact, that a, a new cash entitlement to poor families uh, who don't work would be actually harmful. So Senator Romney and many other Republicans, he's not the only one, have got themselves into this discussion because they're trying to find a way to address the struggles of lower middle class, often not college educated, but uh, struggling working families. And I like to help them too, but I don't think we should mess up welfare policy in order to do that. And I noticed in your question, I think you called it a piece of legislation concerning welfare policy. And it's, it's really not. What Senator Romney wants to do is, is more focused to people higher up the income scale. And, um, and, and he's, he's making a concession in order to get Democratic support that I think is harmful. What is the perception about welfare that most Americans have, which is incorrect, and how do we go about fixing these perceptions? Well, there, there are some things that are, you know, it's funny about that because the one perception that most Americans have, which is correct, is that federal, state, and local, we provide a lot of aid uh, to people who struggle in the United States. It's not correct that we are a cheap, skin-flint country that doesn't help poor Americans. We, Senator Graham and other authors just came out with this book about the myth of, the myth of inequality in America. Transfer payments to families with you know, earnings of less than $6,000 total something like $45,000 so that their total income is over fifty. if you look at their earnings plus all that they get from government. So one perception that is among some people is that we don't do very much, and that's wrong. We do quite a lot. And then the other perception is that, and this is wrong, um, but it's, it's, there's some truth to it too. A lot of what we do supports low-income working people. So sometimes Americans think welfare is only goes to people that are lazy or you know, don't work and, and aren't living healthy lives. But the fact of the matter is we provide an enormous amount of aid what I call work supports to people who have a couple kids and work eight hours a day and a pretty low wage job and just need a little extra to make ends meet. And I think that's a good thing. I think we should reward work in those circumstances to help those families have a stronger a start economically. And so, and we do a lot of that in the United States since welfare reform, we've shifted towards supporting low income working families as opposed to non-working families. Now, we've done so much of that that now it's leading to some people working less. Because if you're getting, you know, I, I, one of the things I think is true about Uber, Uber drivers or other people that work outside of the sort of traditional, you know, eight-hour standard employment situation, they're able to, to monitor their hours so that they can stay eligible for certain benefits, their income tax credit, food stamp benefits, that that shore up their income 
but they may not work as much as they would have in the past when they when they didn't have this opportunity to get uh, benefits to supplement their income. So I'm all for work supports except when they start discouraging work. And then the other one is about families. You know, people in America, one thing it's true, poverty is very, very often related to the absence of a parent in the household, or usually the father. That's definitely true. Kids who are raised in single-parent families are five times more likely to be poor and to struggle in all kinds of ways. Children need two parents there for the long haul to love and nurture them. It doesn't always happen, and sometimes people can overcome that obstacle, but it's not it's not the best. And if you can get both parents involved in helping and contributing, then you're helping that family escape poverty. So that's true that single parent has a lot to do with it, but it's not just a black problem. Some people think that well, the only people that have you know all these children who are single parent households are African-Americans or Hispanics or minorities. And that's not true. More children are born today to single, non-married white girls or white women than are born to uh, blacks or Hispanics. Now that's because there's a bigger white population is larger, but it's still, it's a problem for all of us. And there's been a retreat from marriage. And the fact is, if you, if you're interested in, in having your child be raised up and stay out of poverty in their life, there's three things you should do. And the data shows that if you do these three things, you have a 98% chance of having a child not be in poverty. And that is you graduate from high school, get a job and get married before you have children. If you do those three things, you know, you won't be poor. I noticed the recent Census Bureau data, if someone sent this to me to make sure I've noticed it, the poverty rate, even without transfer payments, just purely based on earnings, don't even have to count in the transfer payments, even without uh, transfer payments, the poverty rate among children who live in households where both parents are married and at least one of them works is less than 2%. So, I mean, there you go, right there. Uh, If you work... Get married before you have kids, you're going to be fine. But you have to, you have to, you have to get into employment, and you have to um, uh, care for your. You uh, get married before you have children. And on those three points, AI scholar Ian Rowe released a book touching on those exact three points as well. Um, yeah, Ian is one of our great scholars, and he does great work, and he's traveling around the country telling that story, as are many of our scholars. I mean, the, one of the things about AI is that we have. We're a conservative think tank. We're a right-of-center think tank, but we have a lot of people who are focused and really focused like a laser beam and have devoted their lives to helping the least among us, the people who struggle the most, which is, you know, sort of violates that sort of caricature of conservatives only caring about the rich or the upper middle class. And so, yeah, it's one of the great things about AI is that we spend a lot of time uh, showing and writing and researching issues facing really struggling Americans and it's because we think that, you know, a growing economy and a focus on personal agency and faith organizations and other areas that are viewed as being more conservative actually work better in helping poor people than just sending them a check from Washington. And now for the final question, which we ask all of our guests, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger and in college? <laughs> Ah, that's a good question. I, I have to think about that. What do I know now that I wish I knew then? And this is good for you to hear, Nick, although not maybe so much for you because you probably know it. And probably all of our executive council members at AI, of course, know it. But I didn't know it. And that is you only get four years, you know, in college. You only get four years of this rare experience to read and think and really challenge yourself intellectually. And don't waste it. 
I mean, work hard. Pay, you're in school to go to school, to read books and write papers and, and imagine that you're in a, circ, in a situation where you're actually being asked to tackle the toughest intellectual uh, issues or questions of our society and you're allowed to practice them. Because after those four years, when you go into work, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. You're going to be busy with whatever it is you're working on. And it'll take a long time until you get yourself in a position where you're being challenged with the big fundamental questions about, you know, peace or war or tax policy or other things. But now when for you guys, you're in college, you can you can pretend you can imagine you're in that circumstance and you can apply yourself to them and you can really learn something. And. Um, when I was in college, I was uh, fooled around too much, and I, you know, I went to, you know, I went to parties, drank beer, and and uh, uh, played sports, and that is fun, but I didn't take as full advantage of my education as I should have, and I've just been lucky that I've been able to overcome that mistake, um, and get uh, be able to have the opportunities in employment that I've had, but but that's the thing I I regret the most is that I I was in a school. As all these schools are, all these schools, we're all wherever we have an executive council, there, Ivy League or, or state university or small liberal arts or religious faith-based college, they all are wonderful opportunities to be around people and to spend some time practicing and chat, thinking and writing and reading, and to not take advantage of that while you have it. Um, it's that's what I wish I'd known when I was in college. Perfect. Thank you, President Dorr. Thanks very much, Nick, for having me. We love the executive councils, and um, thanks for having me on your show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, Visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.